0: All right hey you can turn with me this morning to john chapter eight we have been in a study of john's gospel for several months now and we are sort of in the middle of chapter eight today if you need a bible we've got several back here on our resource table feel free to grab one and use it this morning and just keep it open in front of you because we're going to be looking at a few different passages this morning Let me read this to us. This is John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, "'I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life.' So the Pharisee said to him, "'You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true.' Jesus answered, "'Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going.' But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. If your law, in your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but He who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from Him. The Son remains forever. So, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is the word of the Lord. When we talk about freedom in the context of the gospel of Jesus, or in other words, when we talk about freedom in the way that Jesus talks about freedom, what exactly are we talking about? What is Christian freedom? What is this freedom? And perhaps more importantly for us, are you actually living in it? Are you actually walking in it? Let me give you a little background here. Last week, uh, we looked at the first 11 verses of this chapter, and what we said was that the story that we found, the, the story of the woman caught in adultery... Right. Where Jesus famously said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, that 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 story was perhaps not original to John's gospel, that John perhaps did not write it and that it was a later edition that got inserted into uh, chapter seven and eight. And so if that's news to you or if that's surprising to you in some way, I'd really encourage you to go back and listen to last week's message. Uh, You can find it on our website. You can get a sense of that whole situation because I'm not going to spend a lot of time getting into that this morning. But if it is an addition to John's gospel, and I I think it is, it's actually split the primary storyline here, which is Jesus teaching in the midst of what's known as the Feast of Booths, Or the Feast of Tabernacles. And so, what we want to do today is we want to reconnect the primary storyline, but I think we will also see why early Christians placed the story of the woman caught in adultery in this chapter. I think that will also be clear to us today, hopefully. Two big themes in the Jewish Feasts of Booths, which, if you weren't here last week, the Feast of Booths is this time annually where everybody would come to Jerusalem, it was a pilgrim feast. everybody would come to Jerusalem, they would build these little um, structures out of sticks and, and leaves, and they would actually move into them and live in them for the week because it was a reminder of when they had been in the wilderness after leaving Egypt. So much like Passover was a reminder of when God saved them from Egypt, the Feast of Booths was a reminder of how God provided for them and sustained them when they were out in the wilderness. But there are two big themes in this Feast of Booths. The first we saw last week, which is the theme of water. And there was this elaborate water ritual that took place during the feast. And Jesus addressed that. And what he did was he stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Right? Seemingly in the middle of this water ritual on the last day of the feast. The other big theme in the Feast of Booths is the theme of light. Scholar Don Carson points out that in the evenings on the week of the Feast of Booths, there would be a lighting of four huge lamps, In the temple Specifically in what was known as the court of women In the temple and there would be this exuberant Celebration that would take place And and men of piety Men of good works would dance Through the night holding burning Torches in their hands Singing songs and praises to God This was a part of this annual Feast and so with That image in mind The image of in the evening Everybody dancing holding torches And and sort of the temple being a glow In the middle of Jerusalem, up on the hill, up on Mount Zion, Jesus, just like he cried out about being water, let anyone who thirsts come to me and drink, he cries out, I am the light of the world. And he says, If you are in darkness, Come to me. Just like if you thirst, come to me. If you need light, come to me. I am the light of the world. Now, the fact that Jesus is light should not be new information to us since we've been studying John's gospel. Um, It's just about the first thing that John told us. In this gospel, if you go all the way back to the prologue in chapter one in verse four and five, John says in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And he continues in chapter one to build on that metaphor. So in John's language, the life that Christ Uh, Or the life that is in Christ or the life that Jesus has come to bring is the light of men So Jesus has come into the world bringing new life and in order to find this new life Jesus told Nicodemus the Pharisee in chapter 3 that we have to look to him We have to look to Jesus to find this new life and and we must be born again Like we we have to somehow leave this current life and enter into this new life through rebirth. And we do that, he said, by looking to Christ who is raised up. And this new life in Christ is a life that's different from the old because it exists in the light of truth rather than in the darkness. The light is so powerful and intense that it shines, John says, in the midst of darkness, but the darkness can't overcome it. If you walk into like a pitch black warehouse with just a little flashlight and you turn it on, you might be able to see bits and pieces right in front of you, but by and large, the darkness overcomes the light. But this is a context where the light is so powerful that it drives out all darkness Like darkness cannot stand against it. And this thread runs throughout John that Christ is this light of life. Here's what he said in chapter 3. This is what John said. And you might have blown right by this when we were in chapter 3. But here's what he says. This is chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. And if you would turn there with me real quick because I want you to actually see this. Chapter 3, 19 through 21 Here's what John says. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be, what, exposed. Exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, that may seem like a forgettable passage to you. Here in John, especially because it comes right after John 3.16, right? And and the emphasis is always just on John 3.16. But man, there's so much stuff around John 3.16, so much wealth around it. Um, I actually think this is a central teaching for John in this gospel. What we just read, 19 through 21. I think it's a central teaching. Um, And it's this. Jesus has come into the world as... Truth incarnate Don't miss that He doesn't just bring truth He is truth He doesn't just bring a truthful message He is the embodiment of truth He is the personification of truth And the closer we get to him The more his truth exposes us Or you could say the closer we get to him, the more his light reveals our darkness, right? People hated the light because what they realized was that the light exposed them. Now, now scripture says that some people receive that illumination gladly. They receive the light of Christ gladly. They believe it. They want it. But most people do not. We are so invested in our sin, we not only don't see him as the truth, we don't even want to be around him lest our work should be exposed. I've been reading The Lord of the Rings recently. Any Lord of the Rings fans? Um, Don't be shy, nerds. Um, uh, In the first book, The Fellowship of the Ring... Uh, Tolkien gives us a little bit of a backstory on the character Gollum, and Gollum's like this, you know, wretched creature who is nothing but uh, deceptive and deceitful, but, but at one point in time, Gollum was actually a somewhat normal person named Smeagol, and then he found this ring And and the ring is sort of this object of darkness that appeals to a person's pride and a person's lust for power, and it lures people into, like, an addiction to it, where they have to have the ring and they can't be away from it. It calls to them, in a way, and so Gollum kills his friend in order to get the ring because he has to possess it, and it becomes his what? His precious precious. That's what he calls it. And here's what happens. It changes him. So like, not immediately, but slowly but surely. Like, his possession of it Changes him over time. And one of the things that he begins to notice is he can't be out in the sunlight anymore. Like, it's like the sun hurts him. And and so he goes into the mountains and then he goes down into a cave and then he goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And so he makes this like literal and metaphorical descent. And this is exactly what John's talking about. But it isn't a ring he's talking about, he's talking about our own sin. Verse 20, we read, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So again, look back at verse 12 of our text, chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Again, Just like the prologue, light and life are connected here. If you want the light of true life, Jesus is the way. Following him is the way. The light shines the way out of darkness into real life. Does it mean that the people that Jesus is talking to don't have life? Well, no, that's not what it means. The metaphor, though is that the life that they have is nothing compared to the life that Christ is offering because only his life is rooted in truth. Does that make sense? Back to the ring. Does Gollum have life in the story? Well, yeah, he's alive, but his life is miserable compared to what it could have been without the ring. But he's so addicted to the ring that he doesn't see what he has become. If you've ever walked with somebody or if you've ever been someone in the pit of addiction, you know what I'm talking about here. There is life, but it's not full. It's not flourishing. And if the addiction were gone, it would be like they were a completely different person. Like it's changed them. Now, now here's the point. That's exactly, church, what is going on inside each and every person outside of Christ. Scripture says you are a slave to sin. You are powerless against it. It is your master, and part of its mastery over you is revealed in its deception of you in that it can have full control over you, and yet you might not be able to name it or see it. Jesus goes into this long exchange with the Jews about his authority and his validity and his identity and why his teaching is trustworthy in verses 13 through 29. And I'm not going to unpack all of that this morning, but I do want you to look at verse 23 and 24. He said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. So this boggles their minds when He says this, His hearers. But Jesus is actually speaking very clearly right here. He's not being obtuse. He is not being metaphorical. He is not of this world. He is from above, as it were. Back in chapter 3, he said that he had descended from heaven or from the heavens, and that once again, he would ascend to where he had come from. He has come here with purpose, and the purpose is to save sinners from themselves. I have not come to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved. Back to the idea of addiction, this is like an intervention. You might even call it a divine intervention. But what is an intervention? If you're a person with an addiction, an intervention is when another person or a group of people in your life say, we love you too much to just sit back and watch you do this to yourself. And we're no longer going to act like everything is just okay, so in order to intervene, like the status quo has to be upset. Like there has to be some moment where, like, we step in and we behave differently in relationship to this person who's struggling with addiction. You could say light has to be shown onto the darkness of the situation. But how do people with addiction often respond to intervention? Right. What do they do? I mean, so often they get angry, don't they? Like like it's somewhat rare that a person who's truly deep in addiction, when an intervention happens, says, you know what? You guys are right. I'm wrong. Let me get some help. More often than not, they get angry, they argue, they try to reason, they lash out, they deny anything's wrong, they try to gaslight everyone, they say that those who are intervening are really the ones who have the problem, you know, that kind of stuff. So in other words, they love the darkness more than they love the light. What better place and time for Jesus to stage an intervention than at the Feast of Booths? The time when all these people who are living in darkness are lighting torches and dancing and and singing praises to God, seemingly as if nothing is wrong? And yet Jesus says, Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Something is very wrong in the middle of all of this. So, what is this freedom that Jesus is offering to his hearers? It's freedom from sin. It's freedom from the thing that is enslaving them. And listen, sin is not just the stuff that you do. It's also what you don't do. Right? There are sins of commission, like where I do things I shouldn't do. And then there are sins of omission, where I don't do what I should do. And sometimes those sins of commission and omission are external, Right, Where where they're coming out, I'm either doing something I shouldn't do physically, or I'm not doing something I should do physically, or they're internal. They're, They're happening in here. I mean, how much of your sin life doesn't come out on the outside, but is very active and flourishing in here, or in your heart? To God, those aren't two different things. But it's not just you. It's not just me. This is what's going on for everybody, Scripture teaches. It's true of us all. It's not just people, either. The earth itself is suffering from the effects of sin. The the animal world is suffering from the effects of sin. And it's so pervasive that it's like invisible to us sometimes. But Jesus says this pervasive, all-encompassing thing that you are often oblivious to is the thing I've come to rescue you from. And, And the way that I rescue you from it is by speaking truth and shining light on its reality. You know, it's tempting sometimes to say that sin is like the Matrix in the movie. You know, it's like everybody's living in the Matrix, but nobody knows it. Like it's, it's like this invisible thing that everybody's oblivious to, this, this underlying reality that's invisible to everyone who's living in it. Except when you really step back, like sin is far more visible, isn't it? We've just gotten used to it. It's become normal. But just read the paper. Does anybody read the paper? Watch the news. Right? People are suffering, war is raging, politicians are lying, whole regions are on fire, or flooding, people are dying. But it's not just at large, it's in my own neighborhood. Bullets have been flying recently, people's possessions are being stolen by other people, people are desperate, marriages are floundering, addictions are rampant. it, but it's not just in my neighborhood. Oh, it's also in my home where we struggle to get along, where pride comes out, where envy comes out, where jealousy comes out. Oh, and it's not just in my home. It's also inside of me. The problems of our world do not originate outside of human existence. They largely originate inside of human existence. And it reminds me of the famous line from the uh, English Catholic writer G.K. Chesterton, the, the London Times in 1910, uh, ran like a, a question to its readers. They wanted readers to write in and respond, and the question was just, what's wrong with the world right now? And G.K. Chesterton famously wrote this very short letter in which he said, Dear Sir, I am yours G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world right now? Me and you. So Jesus has this exchange with the Jews, and John tells us that many who were listening believed in Christ. And so then Jesus turns his attention to them. Look at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Do you notice there's a little bit of an order to that? If you abide in my word, meaning... I have to believe the word you're saying is true, and then I have to, like, respond to it in obedience and continue to do that. I have to remain in it. That's what abide means. If you abide in my word, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So seemingly, these are people who believe in Jesus or are starting to believe in Jesus, but they truly don't understand what he's talking about. What do you mean we will be set free when we've never been slaves to anyone? So they believe that he's the Messiah, but they still don't fully get what he has come to do and what he's seeking to illuminate within them. And and this is why I think the story of the woman caught in adultery is put here in this chapter. I think this is how it dovetails. I don't really think it's random. I think it's because Jesus' exchange with her at the beginning of chapter 8 connects with what he's saying to these people here. Do you remember how that story ended? Like all of those who were seeking to condemn her leave. She's left alone with Jesus. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. But then what does he say? Go and sin no more. It's almost the exact same thing that he said to the invalid at the pool of Bethesda who he healed. What he said to him was... Stop sinning so that nothing worse happens to you. So Jesus comes, and he does something incredible for another person, and then he charges them with this charge to turn away from sin, this charge of repentance. Stop sinning. Turn from your sin. Go and sin no more. And church, this is what he's doing for you and me today as well. Continually he's doing this for us he is beckoning us out of our sin in fact he's calling us to come and die to our sin so that we might find truth in him and find new life in him now now here's the question he told this woman to go and sin no more i believe in jesus but i still sin don't you i still mess up am i not really a believer Are true believers sinless? I think both Jesus and John shed some light on this. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So I think that Jesus here is not describing like the random sin that pops up in the life of a believer. I think he's talking about one who is living in a lifestyle of darkness, one who is living in a life of the practice of of sin, a life that is outside of the truth of Christ, a life where you're still enslaved to your sin. Now, now later, when John writes his first epistle, 1 John, here's what he says. This is um, in uh, verse 8. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So he's writing to believers if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us so so here's what he's saying it's a really good thing that we would recognize and be aware of our own sin because it's an indicator that the truth is actually in us that i'm not living oblivious to the darkness that i'm in but rather i am aware of my own sin because the light of christ is shining on it does that make sense if, on the other hand, we look at our life and see little to no sin, what John says is we are deceiving ourselves. And it should be a warning flag to us. He goes on in verse 9 to say what we remind ourselves of every single week when we confess corporately, that if we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the indication is not that the Christian would not have sin, but rather that the Christian would be aware of his or her own sin and eager to confess it and put it to death, which is only possible because our lives have been illuminated by the truth of Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit is within us. I don't have time to get into it today, but John then goes on in chapter 3 to contrast this lifestyle of repentance with a lifestyle of sin where the intention is not repentance, but the intention is to just continue practicing sin. And he says that way lies death. So the life of freedom and truth Is not a life without sin, but it is a life where because of the truth within me, because light has come into my darkness, I'm increasingly aware of my own sin. And I'm following in obedience the guidance of the Holy Spirit, not to walk in my sin, not to practice my sin, but to confess my sin and to stop it, to turn away from it so that I might walk in righteousness. But if I am unwilling to see my sin as sin, which is a big problem in today's world, if I have no desire to repent, if I just want to go on with no change, then John would say, Warning! Maybe the truth is not in you. Maybe you love the darkness more than the light. And I can't look at your heart and judge... Your state of being in regards to that, but you can look at your own heart. What is it that the Lord is calling you to put down? But you don't want to. I'm convinced that, there, that what I'm saying is true, that the, the further we get into this Christ life, the more we follow him in our lives, the more we become aware of our own sin. That it's not actually something that dissipates for us over time. It's actually something that grows for us because we become, in Christian maturity, more aware of how deep those roots actually go. It's not just the stuff that was presenting in the beginning, that it keeps getting deeper and deeper. What is the Lord calling you to put down, but you don't want to? You love it more than you love him, but you feel the tension within yourself. In the 6th century, the church began to develop the idea that there are so-called uh, seven deadly sins. I'm sure you've heard this language before. Uh, this is not something that's necessarily explicitly stated in Scripture, even though all these things are held up as sin in Scripture. The reality that all, is, is that all sin outside of Christ is deadly, not just seven certain sins. And really what the church was getting at with these was sort of a a desire to create categories for sin, And I think what we'll find is that pretty much anything you can think of falls into these categories. Um, Pride, greed, or sometimes you'll see it rendered as covetousness, lust, envy, gluttony, anger, sloth. So these might be helpful to us as categories, but the church also saw seven virtues, virtues that correspond with each of these sin categories and are the counter to them. What do I do if I'm struggling in one of these categories? Well, rather than practicing the sin, I want to repent of that sin, I want to confess it, and then I want to seek to do the opposite. So if I'm struggling with pride, I want to seek to walk in humility, right? Like, if I'm struggling with greed, I want to seek to live out of a place of charity and generosity. Like, if I'm struggling with lust, I want to pursue a life of true chastity and fidelity. I want to pursue gratitude, gratefulness instead of something like envy. I want temperance, which means like abstinence or fasting. I want to pursue temperance instead of gluttony. And gluttony, by the way, for the church didn't just relate to eating too much food. It also related to things like drunkenness or just materialism as well. I just need more, 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 like I can't get enough. I want to practice abstinence or fasting. I want my life to be marked by patience instead of anger or rage or wrath. I want to pursue diligence instead of slothfulness, slothfulness largely being about those sins of omission, like I know what I should do, but I'm just not doing it, I'm just lazy. Hmm. Humility, generosity, chastity, gratefulness, temperance, patience, diligence. It just sounds a lot like Jesus to me. Not only does the light of Christ illuminate our sin, in truth it points the way to new life and Christ himself is our example of how to be in this new life. His life gives us the example of what this new life is all about. So when we are tempted we look to our Savior. Not only to expose our sin, but also to show us the way out through his life. What is he calling you out of today? Let me tell you this. Whatever it is for you, I really believe it begins with confession. And yes, confession to God, but also confession to another person. Um, That is a lost art in the church. And I think it's vitally important. And for the longest time, it's something that people did with their pastor. They would go sit down with their pastor and say, here's what's going on for me. Not so that their pastor could say, well, I forgive you, but so that he could remind them of what is true of the gospel and point them to the one who does forgive. And it could be in your life that that is something that needs to happen for you. And. Guys, I'm, I'm here for you. Justin is here for you. If you want to sit down with somebody and talk about what's going on in your life, that is part of the reason why we exist. I think it's critical. And so, with those things in mind this morning, let us go to him in prayer. And I want to pray especially that his light would shine into the darkness that can be around us or could also be inside of us at times and it is seeking to illuminate and fully expose us so that those things might become a thing of the past and so that we might walk more clearly and closely in the light of Christ and his likeness. Let us pray. Father, God, we give you praise for your word today, and we thank you for the example of Jesus that we see here in the pages of Scripture, that his life um, was lived as Taylor mentioned earlier, in front of us. That he, he didn't just come and die, that he came and he lived. And because of that, we see him. As the writer of Hebrews said, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. We see his life and the example that he has laid before us. And I pray, Father, that as the light of his truth shines into our lives, God, that you would make us aware of the ways in which you have called us to change. And that we would not just be a people who see those things and press on in them, but rather that we would be a people who see them and desire to confess them and to move past them and to find healing in you. Help us, because it takes bravery to do those things. It takes bravery to live differently and to pursue truth instead of falsehood when we are used to falsehood and darkness. God, give us your grace and your courage. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with us this morning and let us continue to worship him.